You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Hello and welcome to the Jazz Session. This is episode 532 for October 7th, 2020. I'm Jason Crane and no, you didn't miss the episode for September 30th. I did. Uh, I did not make an episode last week. Too many things conspired and uh, I apologize for that, but we're back on track now. If you're a member of the Jazz Session, you also received today uh, at the $5 level the track of the week, which is a look at one of my favorite performances of one of my favorite favorite songs from some recordings that it's highly improbable we even have to listen to. If you're a member at the $10 level, you also got another bonus episode, which is a conversation with Emily Franson from the podcast Welcome to My Nerd Brain, on which I was recently a guest. Uh, But this is a conversation that I had with her about a Don Ellis record and a whole lot more. So if you're a member, which you can become at the jazzsession.com slash join thejazzsession.com slash join. You can become a member at the $5 or $10 level and you get bonus content at both. And uh, obviously you get more at 10, but you get cool stuff at five too. My guest this week is pianist Angelica Sanchez. She and pianist Marilyn Crispell have a new duet record called How to Turn the Moon. Angelica Sanchez, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here, Jason. It's such a pleasure to have you. Um, I will just say self-servingly that we are going to talk about a record that uh, you've released with uh, Marilyn Crispell, and there's an interview with Marilyn uh, in the archives if folks want to go and check that out, uh, recorded years ago, so not about this record, but if folks just want to hear from uh, the other half of this duo, that's possible as well. The album is called How to Turn the Moon. Um, It's a uh, duo recording between you and Marilyn and... When I first started uh, listening to it, you know, there's always that question about, well, how it's two piano players. Like, how many sounds is it really possible to make with two of the exact same instrument? And it turns out the answer is quite a lot, <laughs> quite an, almost an infinite number uh, of things seem to happen on this record. It's a really incredible exploration of sound and and trust and uh, empathy. And I just I, I really love it. And so I guess I wanted to start just by asking you how it even came to be. I've been a big fan of Marilyn's for many years since I was about 15 or 16 when I first heard her on a record. Moved to New York around when I was 21 and didn't meet Marilyn until a little bit later 
I was going up to Carl Berger's music camp, which a lot of people know about and have been through, and I was just up there helping out. And every night they would have a jam session in, in like this bar. And one night Marilyn showed up, and I was like, oh, gosh, that's Marilyn. And uh, she came right over to me. She's like, oh, I know who you are. You're Angelica. It's nice to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. And so we started became we became friends then, and uh, I had uh, always had had in the back of my mind, oh, I'd love to write uh, music for two pianos, but I, I didn't know who to ask, you know. And of course, playing with Marilyn for me was a dream. And so we became friends, and we had this. It took about a year just to sort of being friends, and and then I asked her. I said, "How do you? What do you think about a making a do a piano recording?" She says, "Well, send me." Let's look at the music. Tell me your ideas. And we talked about them for a really long time. And then she was like, let's do it after about a year, you know. And uh, we had shared a lot of our lives. She showed me her paintings and her poetry. And, I, you know, I would go up to Woodstock. I love going up to Woodstock. I love it up there. And so it took a, took a few years to kind of get it going and, to, and then to find the right person labeled to put it out because she was able and so then it, when we when we finally sat down and had a rehearsal, it just felt like we'd been doing it for a long time. You know, even though we had our first time playing together, and we had a, we had a New York performance and that went really well. And then six months later, we made the recording. Will you tell me about the music? And I know there's obviously a ton of improvisation all throughout this. Were there were there musical ideas that either either of you or both of you brought to the table as well? So I wrote all the music, and then there's, I think there's about three pieces that we improvised together. But even on the pieces that I wrote with it, the music is written down on a piece of paper. Marilyn brought new things to it. Like, it, the pieces are designed, so, you know, every time you play them, they can be a little bit different. There's there's flexibility and space in them for that. And I, and I wrote them with, with that in mind, thinking, you know, I know I know Marilyn as a player. I know what, which, what she can do. And oftentimes, the pieces that I wrote, were so expansive and turned into other things, which is a wonderful thing to see happen. Like you, you conceive of an idea, and then when you actually play it, it's something totally different. And for me, that's where things are, it's, it's exciting when that happens, right? And then you play it again, and it turns into something different. So it just keeps going and going, like it's infinite almost, you know, the, where it can where it can go to. Yeah, even even with the composed, not not necessarily the composed, but with the composed pieces, um, they're expansive. So. Marilyn and I would bring new things to them all the time. I don't know if I've, uh, despite all the bazillion interviews that have been on this show, I don't know if I've ever asked this, but when, when that is the case, when the music has so much freedom to go anywhere it wants to, how do you figure out what to capture on a record? We 
live in the moment as improvisers. Um, you have to be in the moment to be an improviser. Otherwise, it's not really improvising. So we, in the room, uh, we just sort of feel each other's presence and just deep listening to each other. And, and almost it's like a conversation, right? Just like now, how I'm listening to you being thoughtful um, answering the questions. It's the same thing with the piano. We have these sort of structures in front of us and we're using them as guides almost. And then we're just really getting deep inside each other's universe and listening and being thoughtful. And it was such a joy to play with Marilyn because she's so thoughtful and just her musicianship is incredible. Sometimes two pianos can sort of take out all the air out of a room because right? there's a lot of music sure. happening. You know, but I found with her, I didn't feel that way. You know, we were just really having a conversation up there and, and telling each other stories. I really felt the love in the room like that we have for each other. So that was not something that concerned me. Like, we didn't decide ahead of time what we were going to say. We had loose architecture, and we just trusted each other. And that's, you know, to be as an improviser, you have to be in a moment, and you have to have trust, and you have to be vulnerable. And we, we definitely had all those things happening. I didn't ask that question very skillfully. In my mind, what I was imagining was, you know, you've had rehearsals or you've you've played these, uh, you know, ideas before together. And if it worked really well at one point, is there any thought of like trying to recapture that or, you know, this take is really good. But actually, that one time when we weren't recording and we were just playing together, I really liked what happened there better. Is there any sense of trying to get back to something that happened before or is it just each time it just goes out into the universe and then there's the next time? Well, I think each piece has its character. We were paying attention to a character piece. Sure. But if if something was successful at a performance, that was in the past. You know, so we don't we don't reach back for that. We say, oh, that was really fun. I can't wait to see what happens when we do it again. You know, so it's it's only moving forward that you do it in improvising. And then if you had something successful happen on a previous recording or performance you just sort of enjoy it and move on so because you can't capture what what happened in the past i think that's a a perfectly fair answer to google some of the song titles on here to see if they like referred to things and it appears that there's a fair amount of neuroscience that inspires some of these song titles can you say something about that i've always sort of been interested in in neuroscience for a few different reasons and i fell in love with the drawings of this man um santiago ramon y cajal that 
he's from Spain, I believe, and people consider him to be the godfather of neuroscience. I believe that's what they call him. But he made these drawings. He wanted to be an artist, and his father said they wanted him to be a doctor. So he ended up making these beautiful drawings that were so part of, you know, learning to be a doctor. Um, some of them were made just on, uh, he was guessing what things might look like, you know, before we had the technology to to see on that level. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and then some of them were um, were made from his studies of, of actual, you know, animals and things and such that he would he would investigate. But these drawings I thought were incredibly beautiful because he, he has an artist's uh, heart, you know. And I just kind of fell in love with them. I, I have a, I have one of them. I actually have a print in my house of one of them. And I I just I've always been sort of interested in how you know our biology uh, mimics things and other things in nature. You know. So I, yeah, I've just I've I've always been sort of taken by these drawings. And I, some of the titles I use are just titles of his drawings that were that impacted me when I see them. I, I don't know if you've ever seen any of his drawings. I uh, in the course of looking up uh, some of these things and then kind of reading some of the press materials, I did look at his drawings, which are yeah, kind of breathtaking. They're gorgeous. I think it was last year or the year before NYU, one of the galleries there, because for years I tried to get like permission to use the drawings from Spain, and Spain just didn't want to release any of his stuff. They're very um, protective, which I understand. Um, but a few years ago, they released probably 20 or 30 of his drawings to NYU, a gallery there. And you could go, I believe it was for free. And I remember going and seeing these things for the first time. And they were just even more breathtaking in person. And it wasn't, there wasn't, I think there was a little New York times article on it, but there wasn't a lot of, uh, there weren't a lot of bells and whistles about it. Sort of this underground thing, but it's just gorgeous. And then I, there's a book out called, uh, I forget what it's called now, but it's basically a book of, telling you about his life and his drawings and it's just i really connected with the drawing and i'm interested in neuroscience on top of that so how large are his drawings i didn't really get a picture of that from the the they're not photos i saw very large okay you know they're like book size because he was doing them at a desk and you know that that part of our our biology of our lives is is so small sure you know they, they were none of the drawings that i saw uh, at the gallery were very large, you know, but there's, you know, one little drawing had so many different layers to it, you know, they were complex. Uh, and for me, it fascinated me because it was, it was organic and, you know, connected to the earth and connected to us. And, you know, it, it was just, for me, it's just fascinating. So that's where, that's where those titles come from. A quick break to remind you that this show exists because people like you become members. If you are a member right now, you have already received two bonus episodes in addition to today's episode. You've got the track of the week, uh, which is a look at a classic but improbable (laughs) Art Tatum performance. And if you're a member at the $10 level, you got that plus a conversation with Emily Franson about a Don Ellis record and more. If you're not yet a member, though, don't despair. As soon as you become one... 
you get access to every previous thing that members have gotten. So if you were to become a $5 member today, you'd get every previous bonus show that people at that level have gotten. Ditto for $10. You just unlock it all at Patreon. So it's not like when you become a member, you only get the stuff going forward. When you become a member, you get access to everything. So there's tons of bonus stuff you would immediately be able to listen to. How to become a member? Super simple. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. That's thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession. Both of those will take you to the exact same place. So please do become a member today. I depend on you to make this show, and I thank you. Now back to the episode. It's obviously a, a, you know, very soft lob for me to hit at this point, but all of the things that you just used to describe his drawings are the ways that I would describe, you know, this record and your interaction with Marilyn, you know, this kind of this organic, multi-layered, complex, um, you know, very kind of deeply in tune with the earth. I mean, all of that stuff seems to carry over just perfectly to, you know, to this this interaction. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that you're drawn to art that represents those characteristics because it seems so present in your own work. Well, that, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad that comes through. You know, I, 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 you always have like your intent and you never know if it comes out on the other end, how you, how you hope. So that, thank you for saying that. Let me ask you about the, the title of this record, how to turn the moon. Can you just say something about where that came from? Sure. Um, I always sort of struggle with, with titles it was originally supposed to be called a different title, and some research proved that that was a little too close to something else that's already out there. So okay. I went back to the drawing board, and um, I have, I've been fortunate to have um, Felicia Felicia Van Bork, who's a great artist. She has a website, FeliciaVanBork.com, I believe. She was so generous in, in uh, allowing me to use this collage. She makes these collages that I love. They're gorgeous. And I said, I asked her if I could do something. She says, sure, of course. And then <laughs> when I went back to the drawing board to try to find a title, I was going to use a title from one of the, the tunes, but then I decided not to do that. I asked her if I could use a title of her painting, which is How to Turn the Moon. Of the collage, rather, it's not a painting. And she said, absolutely. She goes, in fact, uh, a poet friend of mine 
gave that to me. It's from one of his poems, and I, I don't know what poem it's from. I didn't ask her. <laughs> but she gave me permission to use it, and I'm like, well, this is fitting because I love the title, and we're using your artwork that's titled that. And it sort of just it just sort of fell into place. You know, my interest in how our biology mimics other parts of life. The the moon is included in that. <laughs> the moon and the sun, how they how they steal from each other, is included. So, and I love the idea that it began as a poem by someone you've never met, and the DNA of that found its way into a collage of an artist that you like, which then found its way into the title and the visual representation of your album. And it's just kind of this beautiful like reproduction in the actual world of an artistic idea and kind of mutating as it goes along. Yeah, which is, you know, that's how that's how life kind of is. So I was very pleased that I didn't feel contrived to come up with that title and it just felt natural to name it that. And I felt, I, I don't like, I, I, every title has, has to be connect to it somehow. You know, I don't, I don't like to just use a title just because I think it sounds cool for me. It sure. has to be meaningful. So, and, and this was, and you know, all the generous people that have helped to make this record possible, you know, are also a part of that. So thank you to Felicia Van Bork. I'm that poet who I don't know who it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like the mystery anyway. Just to speak personally for a second, my own interest in neuroscience kind of came out of um, my meditation practice, which has been going on for the last several decades. And um, during that time, I started to, I initially began it with no interest in neuroscience whatsoever, and then kind of started hearing uh, teachers in the way that I meditate who talk about um, the way the brain kind of rewires while uh, after a significant amount of time meditating and that kind of thing. And so I began to get interested in it and, and dive a little deeper. I mean, my, I would I would still term my knowledge as extremely surface level, but I'm always interested when when other people have been, you know, have kind of felt the pull to discover more about how and why we work the way we do. And so I'm curious where your own interest stems from. Uh, well, my son has a neurological disorder. And so, and that started when he was little. So I started to, and you quickly learn that um, the, even the greatest neurologist, and he had a great neurologist, they just don't have answers. I mean, they're still neurotransmitters in our brain that they haven't discovered. So I would ask him direct questions like, you know, why is this happening or what can we do? And he would say, we don't know. We don't know why it's happening. We may never know, but here's what we're going to, you know. So um, I just said, I just started reading everything I could. And that's how I found Santiago uh, or Monica Hall. Um, you know, I was trying to teach myself how to read an EEG and just anything I can get my hands on that would help me. Because when you, when you don't have control in a situation like that, the only way, to have control is to need knowledge, you know, you gain knowledge. Sure. And then, you know, I, then I started reading Oliver Sacks books, which are wonderful because they're really meant for people that aren't neurologists, you know, much, much, he's much easier to connect with. And uh, that's how my interest first started. And then I, and then I started getting interested in, uh, and because the music, when we, when, when I sit down to play music, I realized that's, a, it's an altered state that I'm in, you know, that, when I first started playing, that altered state wasn't always right there. Like meditation, you have to sort of practice it. It's definitely a meditation for me, you know. Um, and, and so now when I'm playing, I can get into that state very quickly within a matter of, few, of seconds. Well, when I first started to, it, it took a lot longer. Sometimes it would take 15 or 20 minutes. And that's the part of yourself that, has to be able to let go and be vulnerable, but still present with energy, right? 
just like when you meditate, it's not you don't you're not sleeping when you're meditating. Right. <laughs> you know, Ideally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then I made that connection, you know, at the same time trying to help my son to overcome whatever difficulties he was having. And that's how that's how I initially became interested, you know. By the way, he's doing fine now, by the way. He's he's fifteen and his uh he's doing just fine, so but I'm still interested. I like any Oliver Sacks article that comes. I mean, a bunch of them have resurfaced recently, and I, I love reading them. And uh, um, anything else I can get my hands on, I, I love. I love. Uh, I love where it takes you, right? Because the, the mind, our brains are, are, you know, one of the last uncharted places that humans uh, are still trying to figure out. And for me, that's that's exciting and interesting, and and uh, it gives me hope on some level that. You know, there's so much more that we haven't explored. And if we could just sit and be quiet for a moment, you know, we might we might discover something. There's so much noise on every level in, in, in our lives, especially now, that I spend time just sitting in a, in, in a room quietly for a while, you know. And I learn a lot about myself and things around me and, and what music is is in my head or you know, outside of my head and how can I get to it? And my main goals are always to sort of be as honest as I can in my life and, and in music, right? And and that requires thought, like to sit and be quiet for a moment and just, and see what's there. So um, neuroscience sort of it ties into all of that, right? Sometimes it's a little bit cold, but then I, I find there's a sort of wonderful, expansive part to neuroscience, you know, that's, that's undiscovered yet. So much of life is noise, and to find any respite from that noise is unbelievably valuable to me. Yeah, and I also find that um, as you start to, you know, sort of have the, I guess it's courage, to sit with your own self, um, you'll start to reconnect with yourself and the earth and the universe. Like, right, I don't want to get too cosmic, I guess, but, and then you'll realize there's all <laughs> You're in a safe space, so you get as cosmic as you want. <laughs> There's there's all these untapped parts of our brain that can connect with things that we may necessarily not see in everyday life. And that's a big part of my music, things that you cannot see, but you can feel them. And, and people feel things, but just don't acknowledge it all the time. If you're ever in the forest, you know, at daybreak or dawn, it feels different, you know, and there's a reason for that. And most people sort of, run away or shy away from those types of feelings. But I have found that if you lean into them and just 
experience them for for what they are, you know, you'll start to hear and see beautiful things, you know. And so, uh, I mean, you know, and sometimes when you say that out loud, people get a little bit freaked out. But, you know, people believe in things they can't see all the time. They just don't think about it, you know. Sure. And I said, you know, well, if you sit with yourself for a moment, you'll you'll start to reconnect with parts that have been lost. You know, I think ancient cultures were definitely more in tune with those types of things because they had to be. And it affects your relationship with people, with animals, with food, with everything. I have found that um, sitting in a room alone is much more, has much, many more benefits than just, you know, mental health and things like that, which, which is why people usually start to do that. One more quick break from the show to take a moment to thank the folks who make the Jazz Session possible, starting with the members who support it and the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, Dave Rabel for the logo, and Chuck Ingersoll for the voice of the intro. You can hire Chuck to do your voice work at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram at the Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review the Jazz Session on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen it greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners if you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast poetry and more you can subscribe to my twice monthly newsletter go to the jazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link and now back to the episode You mentioned earlier that in practicing, sometimes it takes a little while to kind of get into that um, meditative or open space. And I wonder how that works in a performance. Do you do you spend some time before the gig starts, you know, kind of alone or, you know, in just being with yourself? Or how do you how do you work that when you kind of have to be on as soon as you walk out onto the stage? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it doesn't take much time for me to get into that meditative space anymore, but it used to. 
but it's been, you know, 24 years of practicing that and probably only realizing the last 10 years what was necessary, what I was trying to do uh, before you would just go off a feel. Well, that felt good. And that didn't feel good. And now I know it's because, you know, your, your, your meditative state would take some time to get into. But okay. now, yes, of course, um, when I sit down to p- perform it within seconds, I can get in there, but I, um, if I have the opportunity wherever I'm performing, I'll go to that space an hour or two before I'll spend as much time in the room alone without, you know, without too much interruption as I can, because every space has its own energy and own feel. And I love doing that with a larger group. I, I haven't known that. And, uh, I've done that before. Like everybody show up two hours, two, three hours before the gig. And sometimes people complain, but it's like, there's something about being in the space and feeling that, right? So then when you go out, you're not looking around at things you hadn't seen before. But, you know, that could be a distraction maybe. But yeah, I like to be in the space ahead of time. I like to play the piano. I like to make sure no one touches it, you know, once I've touched it. <laughs> like, you know, it's like it's a set up for me. We've already met and talked. Um, so those types of things help. But if I don't have the opportunity, which we've all done where you get off a plane and drive straight to a gig and you have to play um i can get into that space um pretty easily now and now i find that like um most of walking around life and and sitting with a piano or they start to be sort of the same thing you know it's not something i have to say oh i'm gonna flip the switch now now it's it's so sort of one thing where you know i try to be mindful and thoughtful and in all of my life now you know, but yeah, when I sit to play, that's a deeper meditative state for me, you know. Um, but yeah, being alone helps. I practiced Tai Chi for many years. Sometimes I'll do a little Tai Chi or horse dance to get in there quickly just to focus my body or whatever. Um, but I can also just sit down and, and, and get in there and, and, and be naked, as they say, you know, yeah. so that's what, that's what, it, that's what it feels like. We're, we've, of course, spent most of our time talking about how to turn the moon, but are there other projects that you've got uh, on either the front or back burner these days? Sure. I, you know, I don't know. This is, so I have, I've had a known it for, uh, for about four years now, I guess four or five years. Um, time's all relative. I can't ever figure <laughs> out. When Especially now. Yeah. When, yeah now, right? um, and we're supposed to do a recording in December. Um, it's a no net with, um, uh, trumpet, coronet, contra, bass, alto, clarinet, tenor saxophone, alto saxophone, a guitar, bass and drums, and myself on piano. And, uh, we've played a bunch and I have a, I think I have one live recording, but it didn't turn out how I wanted. So I said, let's go into the studio. So, uh, the problem now is there's, there's a few people that live not in New York, so they have to fly from other places, but the studios that I booked does not have the space to social distance that many horn players. Gotcha. And I'm having issues finding a studio that wants to take that risk. Cause it's a risk. I understand. So I may have to postpone that, uh, until next spring or next fall, even, which is a disappointment. Cause I was hoping to get this recorded and have it out by next spring. Cause I've been working on it for several years and, um, had written some new music as well as some of the old music. You know, I had arranged a Duke Ellington piece, even which for me is, was a big deal. I, I, I love Duke Ellington. So um, I was excited to have that recorded. 
Um, but it's going to be probably on hold now because I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to put anyone at risk and, you know, I don't, I don't want to, um, I haven't able, I can't find a studio with that, that kind of space that will take the risk. All studios sort of want you to have a mask on. So rather than push it, um, cause December's right around the corner, I, I have to postpone it till next year. Okay. But that's, that's the next project that that's solid that, that, you know, that I have music ready to go for. So. My guest for this show has been Angelica Sanchez, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, the new record, How to Turn the Moon, is a delight, and I highly recommend it to everyone. And I, I really hope you'll come back. I wish you all the best, and it would be lovely to have you back on the show anytime you'd like to come back. Jason, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. Stay safe out there. Thanks to my guest this week, Angelica Sanchez. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.